This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the new podcast from Shares and AJ Bell. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and with me is Dan Coatesworth, who's from Shares Magazine. And this week we're joined by Steve from Shares Magazine as well. So each week we plan on bringing you all of the stuff that's happened in money and markets over the past seven days that's caught our interest um, and chatting you through some of those topics. So we'll come up with some investment ideas, we'll come up with some tricks to save you some money and we'll tell you what's happening in the stock market as much as we understand it. So first up this week, we'll be talking about a few simple rules on pocket money that can help your kids hopefully better manage their money. And we'll have a look at the boom in subscriptions, everything from razors and TV and why that's getting a new lease of life. We're also going to see why FTSE 100 CEOs seem to be dropping like flies. Um, but first, we're going to take a look at this pocket money idea. So Laura, when you were a kid, did you sit outside your house selling lemonade and use that money to stick it into a savings account? I don't know if you thought I was a kid in the 50s, but no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get pocket money for stacking the dishwasher and maybe washing cars. Very good. Well, this is it. The idea that if you if you start at an early age, hopefully you can develop a good savings habit. Um, and so... This week, we're taking a look at this concept of um, if a parent can be slightly strict on how their children spend their pocket money. Uh, I've come across this concept of splitting it into four different jars. So the idea, if, let's say your, your child gets £10 a week, that they would be forced to split it into 10% of that money goes to charity. So this is the idea that they can understand the value of helping others who have less than them. 30% go into something special, such as saving up for a roller skates where they don't have to wait for the birthday or, or Christmas present. So 30% goes into long-term savings. So that's the idea that they can um, perhaps understand that they need to save for something in the future, even though they don't know what it might be. And hopefully you could potentially use that money for a house deposit when they're a bit more grown up, um, or even get the, the idea that you're going to be using for retirement savings. And finally, 30% that anything you want spending. So this is the idea that you know, I want to go down the shop and buy a toy or a magazine. Um, it, it, now, this might seem quite strange and, and very strict, but if you uh, sort of impose these principles at an early age, you're actually teaching some children some vital skills. So I don't know, Steve, did you, were you a well, saver? I mean, one, one of the subtleties with that plan, Dan, and, and I think it's probably quite valuable, is, is it introduces at quite an early age the concept of a portfolio and management. Um, and I think that's probably quite an interesting dynamic for a six, seven, ten-year-old child is understanding I have a certain amount of money and I need to split it up between all sorts of different requirements, some that are benefiting me, as you say, and some are benefiting other people. I think that's quite an interesting dynamic way of doing it, actually. I think it also starts a conversation about money and budgeting and how money doesn't kind of come out of thin air at a really early age, which I think is actually a valuable thing. I think... The downside to it is a lot of parents might think they've already got a lot on their plate and it seems like a lot of faff to kind of separate out these buckets and police their children, I guess. What did your kids think when you well, mentioned it to them? Well, I, I ran it past them and I was quite surprised by the reaction and both of them were really quite excited. Um, I, I think, one, that they like the idea of potentially if they get a shoebox and they can start you know, put different labels on it and they're quite good already to understanding separating money. But they're really excited about the, the charity bit, the understanding that they, they themselves might be able to contribute to help people um you know I, as a kid i was 
I was quite surprised by their reaction because you would have thought that they'd be, be complaining saying no I want all this money to spend now but um, so hopefully you know, I'm going to put this into practice and let's see where it goes but yeah I think instilling the kind of savings habit at a really young age would really help people we've obviously seen quite a few initiatives recently in terms of financial education in school and trying to teach kids more about budgeting um but the more you can do from home at a young age seems like a good idea to me i suppose one of the pushbacks you might get from some parents is this concept about introducing monetary um dynamics to children too early um, and I've, I've, I've had that feedback from some parents in, in my time. And I think it's probably quite a difficult balancing act. At what age do you start introducing finances to, to a young person's life? I mean, we all know we need to know about financing, budget, budgeting and so on. But what, what age is too young? That's probably something that everyone has to decide for themselves. Mm. Because there are these, um, so there's these apps now that you can get, so kids can have their own debit card, and then there's a budgeting app that comes with it, where they can kind of do some of this breaking down that you're talking about, but all through an app, and then they actually, I think from like the age of eight or something, they can have this almost debit card that they go out and spend in shops, and some parents love that, but some parents make that same argument as you were making, Steve, that actually it's too young for kids to have a debit card, and it's too young for them to kind of have these apps that teach them about money, and they should just be running and playing in the woods yeah but <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess it, the idea of um you know monitoring what you're doing with your money um it, it's really interesting for, for we were going to talk about the subscription economy the idea you've got some money constantly going out of your bank account every month i think a lot of people do this now they're, they're probably used to it with say like a netflix subscription they're used to paying this money and not worrying about it but actually um this concept's really spreading into into like, it's not just consumers it's actually spreading into business isn't it steve so you you've been looking at this um this topic recently yeah i mean, i i i found it quite interesting because it's it's we all accept it's not a new idea it's been around for for, for many many years and, and we probably most associate it with things like newspapers or magazines and and more recently to pay tv but i mean it's it's clearly spreading its tentacles across the consumer space and increasingly into business and and it's this concept of as a service you're selling something as a service and it doesn't necessarily have to be products it can be services as a service um, one of the most interesting uh, companies I, I, I thought was, was Rolls-Royce. They, they effectively sell many of their aero engines for, for basically cost because the idea for them is, is they get 25, 30 years of good maintenance income. So it's, it's servicing as a service almost from their point of view. And that's, that's really valuable. And there are lots of reasons why this is, is, is a very compelling argument for, for, for investors, certainly. I mean, I know I've been looking at... Um, a quick look to see what subscriptions you have these days. Uh, you, know, you can buy razors that get sent to your, you know, your, your home once a month. Um, you know, packets of nuts. You've got dog food. But actually, even when I was ordering my online shopping from a supermarket the other day, there was sort of, there was a message popped up by saying, if you sign up for this monthly fee, you can potentially save a bit of money. Uh, with your delivery costs. I mean, it's quite an interesting proposition how um, it's almost like people are now getting so used to saying, yes, I'll agree to spend a small amount of money every month um, when actually it might add up to something. But if you flipped it and said, would you like to pay £100 up front? I bet you the amount of people signing up won't be as high. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the, that's one of the, the really big compelling issues. I mean, people in work, and even if you're in retirement, you'll like to be getting some kind of regular income on a probably monthly basis. 
And so you have, that's your cash flow effectively. So if you're paying for a service or a product, is, is wrap it into that monthly cash flow. So rather than having a big ticket item, say hit suddenly there's a hundred pound or 500 pound bill upfront, pay it now, you can spread that over the course of the year. And it's just much easier for people to budget that way. And it's easier for businesses to budget that way because um, big CapEx projects suddenly go from capital expenditure and they move into operating cash flow, which is easier for finance directors to manage. So it's, it, it works across the consumer and the business environment. So I have an issue with the subscription economy, though, because there's actually quite a few. I can definitely see how it makes sense for businesses and it's locked in revenue. But the flip side of that is there's quite a lot of consumers and just normal people out there that have signed up to subscriptions that either have forgotten that they've got them and it's coming out of their bank account or have tried to cancel them. And the process is so hard and so convoluted that they've given up. And so I do think that there is a kind of customer responsibility angle to it yes have your subscription model but if you're going to make it so hard for people to cancel that they just end up locking into this thing that they're not using then there's got to be some kind of kind of moral or ethical element to that hasn't there yeah i, I agree um, and i think that groundwork has been done if you think about uh, maybe five years ago gym memberships was a classic example where you'd be expected to sign up for a year you'd pay on a monthly basis but if you cancelled the contract within the year you'd be liable for the rest of the year's payments now that's clearly not acceptable and and whatever watchdog has, has looked at that and decided that's not allowable now so you can cancel on a month one month basis i think you have to take some responsibility yourself as a consumer though and and a demand your rights and b look at who are the good providers and go with good providers and stay away from ones that, uh, that operate badly I've, i did spot one that it did actually make me chuckle a bit um Something called Dinosaur Dracula Fun Pack. Um, <laughs> what? It's the idea for $25 a month, you can actually order a box of random 80s or 90s toys, like Happy Meal toys, trading cards and stuff. So you, know, it, it, it's, you can sense that there's, there's people are recognising that people are so um, willing to, to sign up for a subscription. Um, and so how far can we take this to the realms of, um, you know, that sounds like a bit of fun, but something perhaps you only want to get once or twice in your life. But um, That feels like peak subscription to me. That <laughs> feels like we might have reached the peak of the ridiculous model. Then. Maybe, maybe well, so. There, I mean, there's, there's this model that's been, been I mean, it's, it's, it's starting to come down the, the popularity curve now, but it's big in America, it has been, about you buy your box and it's filled with something. You don't even know what it is, but it might be something that's edible, it might be something that's wearable, it could be almost anything, and you pay a subscription to get this kind of surprise. It's almost like having a monthly birthday, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> monthly birthdays I could get on board with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, talking of surprises, uh, the amount of FTSE 100 CEO changes that are being announced this year is just unprecedented. We're now on to number 18, which is Aviva's Mark Wilson. Um, so I, mean, it, it's, I don't know if you, if you, if you take any interest in this, or, or perhaps the question is, why are these people leaving? Um, it's actually it's quite remarkable, but you know, perhaps it's not actually that surprising why they are leaving. Because I had a look to see some of the names that are going. British American Tobacco's announced to change, BT, um, London Stock Exchange, Microfocus, Sage, WPP. I mean, I can see something slightly in common in all these companies. They're either 
experienced some problems or growth hasn't been good enough or perhaps they've come off the back of some M&A um, and they need someone new at the top to, to sort of steer the business back into a new path. Um, so you can see that shareholders perhaps have been getting a bit angry. Most of those share prices in the companies I just mentioned have been through some rocky periods, um, particularly with Aviva. I mean, the company talked about how Mark Wilson had turned around the business in the five years that he was there. But actually, shareholders haven't really got a reason to celebrate. Under his leadership, the Aviva share price was up 27%, which is roughly in line with the FTSE. But actually, just look at life insurance peers, legal and general, it's up 78%, or Prudential's up 94%. Now, when you've got the benchmark high-profile peers like that, it's going to become a point when you know the board or shareholders or both are going to say you know enough's enough. You know someone has to take the blame if we're not satisfying shareholders, and that's ultimately going to be the person at the top. So is this part of that kind of bigger move towards shareholder action? We saw it in Unilever recently, where with their kind of proposed move being voted down. So are we in more of an era of actually taking account more of what shareholders say and, and responding to the fact that there might be revolts at, at annual general meetings? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, you have to remember a shareholder is a part owner of a business. Um, you know, d- just by handing over some cash, say a thousand pounds worth of stock, you think you're just there to invest the money. But no, you are. You're a part owner of this business. And so um, a shareholder, you can put pressure on a company to do change. But what actually, something like Aviva, it might be, or certainly what I've read, is that the board, or it might be boards across the FTSE 100 and other companies, have been more proactive and thinking, well, why wait for shareholder activism? You know, we can see ourselves that perhaps the company's not going in the right direction for, for everyone that works there, for its shareholders as well. So potentially, you know, we need to change. A, isn't there another issue at play here? And it's about the timeframes that, that people are expected to deliver goods. Um, in, in, with, with companies listed on the stock market, um, pretty much you assess um, performance based on share price action. And there's, there's, there's pros and there's cons about, about doing that. But um, increasingly, we are expecting um, positive change very, very quickly. And one might wonder whether we're expecting too much too quickly. Um, there's the analogy we've discussed about around the office about the, the, the time with um, the time frame of FTSE 100 bosses and football managers. And, you know, they're expected to deliver almost instant- instantaneously. And if they don't, they're out the door. Um, and one wonders whether that's better for businesses in the long term. I mean, it's, I think it's an open question. I don't have the answer for it right now. I think I'm definitely not going to draw analogies with football managers because that's not my area of expertise. But um, I think that you then could fall into the trap of chief executives coming in and feeling like they have to make dramatic changes or big changes just to make an impression so that they don't get ousted. And the kind of former days of chief executives just going along steadily and making small changes and gradually improving the company, maybe not necessarily a thing of the past, but maybe that's not as acceptable anymore. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly see, you watch the share price reaction on the day of an announcement. Um, Sometimes if if a company has been kind of sleepy and boring, if they they report an outsider rather than an internal promotion, I have seen many examples of share price jumping up because it's this idea of someone can actually bring some new life into it. But on the flip side, you get companies that actually been run quite well chief execs have just gone naturally maybe they've got another job of retiring um, and if they bring someone new there is actually a fear that they're going to upset 
what was a nice stable business so i mean there isn't one one single answer for this but um it's interesting how, how different companies have managed though the process and the transition ideally um even if things are not really going brilliantly for the current ceo you want the board to say well look over the next six months we're going to sort of soft recruit for the next you know, for the successor uh, rather than have this kind of line in the sand and suddenly you're out now who do we get next and it's interesting the share price reaction when stephen kelly left sage quite recently and, and the, the stock market was, was really taken aback. They, they, they were very surprised. And you can look back and you can analyse the reasons why he may have left the company and whether he was pushed or whether he jumped. Um, but fundamentally, the share price went down by about 8% on the day. Now, that suggests to me that the, the, the planning of succession is not always optimal. And sometimes being a bit draconian and, and launching someone out the door is not necessarily in the best interest in the long term. Hmm. So, Laura, what else has been catching your eye this week? Well, we're only three weeks, less than three weeks away from the next government budget. So obviously that is starting to dominate our world. Um, And so this week there was an announcement on pension tax relief and the proposed kind of changes that might be coming about in, in the budget. Now, it's fair to say that every budget, there's always announcements about how pension tax relief is going to be going to be cut um, because it does cost the government quite a lot of money each year, £39 billion to be exact. Um, but... People seem to be putting more stock into this story and thinking that it's actually going to happen. Um, and so there are two kind of things that could change. Either the amount that you put into your pension each year could be reduced. So at the moment, most people, there are some exceptions for very high earners, but most people can put £40,000 into their pension each year. And there's talk about reducing that amount down. Um, or on the flip side, or maybe at the same time as, um, the government might reduce the tax relief that's available Available. So when you put money into a pension, government grants tax relief on that. And if you're a 40% taxpayer, you get 40% tax relief on your pension. And there's talk about reducing that down maybe to 30% or a blanket 20% for everyone, regardless of, of what your income tax rate is. But I mean, it's, it must be very frustrating for everyone who's trying to manage their money. But why is the government always fiddling with this pension system? It, it, it just seems to be the one area where there's no consistency. It's the constant frustration of, of people in the industry is that you're trying to engage people in this very, very long-term savings product where they're going to be putting money away into it for, for 40 years. Um, and every six months or every 12 months, the government tinkers with the rules. And that only really serves to disenfranchise people with the system and think, well, they're always changing the rules, so I don't know what it's going to look like when I come to retire in 30 years' time. Um, So I'm just not going to bother with it. Um, So it is quite a frustration. But the issue is that it it costs the government a lot of money. I mean, £39 billion is a lot. And in the kind of environment at the moment where they don't have loads of spare cash and they need to plug the gap in the NHS and solve the care crisis and lots of other demands, on money it seems like quite an easy one to tinker with at the edges and save quite a lot of money i mean do you think cutting from cutting to 30 percent tax relief could that have a negative impact on people um incentive to to want to put more money into their pension or do you think actually they're just people just get used to if there is such a change so there's kind of flip side if you're a basic rate taxpayer then that gives you a bit more of incentive to save um, which arguably is one of the large areas that needs to be plugged people saving more for their pension and, and typically it's the people that don't feel like they have as much that they can put away each month um, that maybe aren't earning as much that is that group of people that we really need to encourage on the flip side obviously if you're a high rate taxpayer you're getting less, less tax relief so it's not as appealing to put that money in a pension 
I mean, that said, it's still a, a pretty good deal. People still need to save for their retirement. Those higher earners will have spare money each year that they want to put away. So I'm, I, I think it's probably quite unlikely that we'd end up seeing people say, well, fine, I'm not paying into my pension at all anymore. But um, I think it's the constant tinkering that is annoying for everyone in the industry, but also um, kind of puts off savers. I suppose one one element potentially with this this upcoming budget is is will it be I'll, I'll say it's the monkey in the room is it the pre Brexit budget and does that tie the hands of 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 decision makers at the end of the day because they will want maximum flexibility given the fact that no one seems to really know what's going to play out. Definitely, I feel like it would be nice to have a Brexit free podcast, but that is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so um, definitely, I think that's true. I think it's going to be impossible to get through any big revolutionary changes. There's not the support in government and there's simply not the time to put these th <coughs> changes through government and have people work on it when they're so preoccupied with working on Brexit. So the idea from saving money to actually spending money, um, it looks like investors hungry for a slice of Terry Smith's latest cake may not actually have to go on a diet. So Terry Smith's famed fund manager of Fundsmith, one, perhaps one of the most popular uh, investment funds on the market today, um, his outfit are launching something new called Smithson Investment Trust, and they've decided that they're going to raise, rather than the 250 million that they were targeting, they're going to raise 600 million. I mean, that, that is quite a dramatic hike. Um, and I can potentially sort of see two reasons why they might want to have done this. Um, one is if, if you fancied buying a large chunk of this uh, investment trust, hopefully you might get a bigger allocation because there was a fear that there were too many people wanting to invest in this product and only a certain number of shares to go around. Um, but of course, allocation is never guaranteed. So you don't really know what you're going to get if you take part in the IPR offer uh, until they've confirmed everything on the, day, on the first day. Um, the other side is that it might actually stop people trying to flip the shares. Um, some of Terry Smith and other sort of famous fund managers in the past, when they've launched an investment trust, you'll see the shares suddenly jump to a premium to the to the value of its underlying assets. It's just simply because the investors sort of are racing to buy the shares. They have the fear of missing out. Um, but really, you know, as an asset manager, I'm sure Fundsmith doesn't want this to happen. It's not really, really in the best interests of everyone. So it's, it's interesting, Dan. I mean, you mentioned about people trying to flip it. I mean, aren't they absolutely counter to, to everything that Terry Smith is about? I mean, he's, he's a, he's a mm. consummate value investor. Take your time, invest for dividends and, and long-term returns. So the concept of going to a Terry Smith fund and trying to flip it for a, a quick buck is, is quite amusing. Really. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, this is it's coming soon in, in, the, in the next couple of weeks. So uh, certainly one to look. And I'm sure it won't be the last that uh, we'll be talking about this product, given how everyone seems to you know have a, have a real faith in, in Terry Smith as a, you know, well, it's, it's the culture of the star manager, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's been around for a while and I suspect it's not going to go away. Uh, interesting dynamic. I mean, we looked at this recently in shares and just the popularity of investment trusts. And for years, they had been the poor man of the investment spectrum, certainly when it came to equity investment and they seem to be getting a real new lease of life and I, I don't know exactly why is it, why that is maybe it's just getting a better press or, or just better information in the market I'm not really sure but the cash inflows into um, investment trust this year and in recent years has been significantly better than previous years and there's loads launching at the moment as well Terry Smith isn't alone is he there's quite no. a few other trusts that are launching and all that have launched already and raised more than they expected to 
So the idea of the star fund manager is probably something we're going to look at in a future edition of this podcast. But that's it for this week. So if you've got any comments, tips or areas you want us to talk about in a future edition, please do email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review wherever you've listened to it. For now, that's it for me. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. See ya. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply.